Thank you very much, uh, Jaydev Ranadeji. Um, it's really a pleasure to be invited here and to be part of this uh, conference. Uh, I wish to extend my warm greetings uh, to all the uh, participants, and I also wish to acknowledge Dumum uh, Rinpoche, uh, who is an elder uh, in our community and, in, and an intellectual who was in charge of Tibet House for many years, and many of our uh, friends like Vijay Kranti and others from the uh, media and the diplomatic community who are uh, present here, and a lot of uh, uh, young Tibetans also. So today's uh, uh, topic uh, is China's Tibet policy under Xi Jinping. And if you look at the details of the uh, other parts of the conference, I'm sure you will uh, get a fair enough understanding of who are going to speak on these subjects. And there are many experts uh, who are doing detailed study uh, from the uh, Indian community uh, that Jaideji had invited and also from the Tibet Policy Institute that represents our Central Tibetan Administration's think tank in Dharamsala, who will definitely elaborate more on some of the things that Jayadevji already uh, referred to. Um, so I will just give you an overview of uh, Xi Jinping's China, Tibet policy. The overall uh, vision of uh, Xi Jinping is to have one nation, uh, one culture, and one language uh, at the expense of uh, the uh, national identity of all other nationalities inside uh, Tibet. So there is no political space whatsoever which is taken for granted in the free world. You have no access to Tibet. You cannot travel to Tibet. Uh, that is the level of uh, control we are talking about. So that affects our uh, communication, that affects our information gathering as to what is exactly happening inside Tibet, but still we resort to both conventional means and also modern means for information gathering from inside Tibet. And uh, I think Abalama also referred to uh, Tibet being uh, under a valence uh, gridlock system. Uh, if anybody had read George Orwell's 1984, uh, it's more like the uh, Ovalian uh, system that has taken root uh, in the whole of China, and more particularly in the Tibetan region or the Uyghur region or the Mongolian region, uh, where uh, your own one's action is linked to welfare of all your near and dear ones. So you know that 157 Tibetans have self-immolated in the last uh, 13, 14 years. Uh, hoping against hope that the Chinese government will pay some attention to their plight or hoping against hope that the international community will come to their rescue. But unfortunately, to no avail uh, so far, but I keep telling our community that our movement is an accumulation of all these sacrifices and their sacrifices will not go in vain. Of course, we discourage Tibetans from uh, taking uh, such action because our population is very small and every life is important. And if you live uh, longer, then you will be in a position to serve the Tibetan cause longer. Once you commit uh, self-emulation, which is again a very thin line between violence and non-violence, which is determined through uh, the motivation of the person who commits that act, uh, uh, is a huge loss uh, for our uh, cause. 
Um, so if I want to commit uh, self-emulation today, then I have to think many times about my action because my action will have its impact on my near and dear ones. That is also the reason why China is, is into DNA profiling of people to identify who are the nearest relatives uh, related to the person who committed the political act. And Chinese government uses all kinds of artificial intelligence, including, uh, of course, uh, electronic identification. Uh, if uh, I have a friend outside uh, the capital, Lhasa, and if that person comes to meet me, I am responsible for that person's action. If that person commits a political action, all my family is going to suffer because he resides with me. Or you live in a hotel where you can be tracked by the Chinese government through uh, electronic identification and geolocation. So that is how controlled you are in all your movements, where the government surveils every movement of its citizens uh, or people. So there is no political space to do whatever. That is also the reason why you don't hear much about Tibet. Uh, and people say that uh, oh, the Tibet issue is no more in the minds of uh, the international community and that uh, Uyghur uh, issue and Hong Kong issue has taken over. But I keep telling them it's not a competition between uh, the causes that are prevailing uh, in China. Uh, whatever Chinese government does to any other national minority reflects the same because it's the same government, it's the same people who are committing these acts. Uh, and I tell my friends, Uyghur friends and Mongolian friends and Hong Kongers, and now, nowadays even Manchurians are uh, coming out, so uh, we tell them that it should not be a competition, uh, whereas we should look uh, more from a holistic point of view as to what Chinese government to their own people, the Chinese people, and to the national minorities, which... Uh, is similar because they experiment one policy in one region and then they uh, replicate that on a larger scale in other areas. So this is the state of political freedom inside Tibet and that's also the reason why you don't hear so much and people have no access to Tibet. Uh, no journalists have access to Tibet, no diplomats have access to Tibet, not even ordinary tourists. Uh, in the Tibet Autonomous Region area. Of course, since uh, the opening of the border between Nepal and uh, India, Tibet uh, on 1st May, uh, we are still watching how much uh, uh, human uh, travel is there between the two countries or it's more with goods that are flowing from the uh, two sides. But there is not many people that are going into Tibet and you have no access to information. China makes sure that Tibet is blocked out of international view and makes sure that there is no evidence of any of its atrocities uh, that are happening inside Tibet. So I say we are dying, culturally we are dying a close, uh, 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 slow death because now China is striking at the very root of Tibetan identity, which is the Tibetan language. And the reason why uh, we are so proud uh, of our language uh, is because that is also the reason why we have become a repository of one part of ancient in Indian wisdom. Uh, maybe I'll call, cover a little more on that uh, later. But um, mm, on the language front, uh, uh, this may also be one important uh, 
policy of the Chinese government where we, we can look even at Chinese government changing the emotional equations of the Tibetans by cynicizing them, by, uh, by changing them into Chinese because we have a very, very long and established and respectful relationship with India and that is being changed. Uh, maybe I'll cover a little more on that uh, later. Um, and then, of course, there are the uh, issues related to religion and culture of Tibet and the environment of Tibet. So maybe I'll start by focusing on the geostrategic importance of Tibet. We have a, a known history of more than 2,200 years. And uh, from that time on since, we have had relations with the Indians. So the first king of Tibet, Nyatitsimbo, the shoulder-throned, enthroned uh, king, uh, is supposed to have come from India, where they, that person came. Uh, there were two, two, three different variations in terms of uh, uh, the stories revolving that, but we can be sure that the first king of Tibet came from Tibet 2,200 years ago, from, from India, sorry. So that is the relationship of India and Tibet, how far it goes back. Then there was the period of the uh, Kanishkas who spread Buddhism into central India. And that must also be the time when we received the first Buddhist scripture uh, during Hathoduri Nyenzen's time. And that text uh, was not decipherable for the Tibetans because we didn't have language and it became a secret uh, text during those days. And then in 7th century, uh, King Sonzen Gambo had a, a Chinese consort and also a Nepalese consort. That's also one reason why China used to claim its sovereignty over Tibet. So if you use the same logic, even Nepal would have the same sovereignty over Tibet because the same emperor had a Nepalese consort. Uh, so China does not dispute that now because they know that it's hollow. So, uh, but it was during those times that uh, the images of Buddha started coming into Tibet. And then uh, from 7th to 9th century, we must have had the biggest uh, Tibetan empire at that time, extending from Xi'an, the capital of China, up to the present day Samarkand in Uzbekistan. That used to be the extent of Tibetan empire from 7th to 9th century. And uh, in 8th century, uh, of course, during the 7th century, Tibetan language came from India. Uh, these are some facts that people are not very familiar with, and sometimes we live under the illusion that people know about these small things. Uh, but some believe that maybe Tibetan language has something to do with the Chinese language because Tibet is now occupied by China, but it has nothing to do with the Chinese language. If I read this consonants in Tibetan, it's very, very, very similar with Hindi today. So it's in Hindi, it's ka 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 ganga. Tibetan is ka 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 cha cha chanya ta ta thana pa 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 ma cha san zawa sha sa ya ra la sha sa ha a thirty consonants. And Hindi, you have many vowels, so we have only e, e, u, a, o, only four vowels. So our language comes from India. It's an extension of Indian written language and spoken, of course, spoken, there is differentiation. And then in 8th century, Tibetan Buddhism also came from India. There were Chinese Buddhists also in Tibet. 
but His Holiness always keeps uh, talking about this, saying that the Tibetan emperors at that time were very smart uh, to adopt Buddhism, not from Chinese Buddhists, because Buddhism went to China before it came to Tibet. Um, and there were Chinese monks also in Tibet, so there was a, a debate between a uh, disciple of Shantarakshita called Kamalashila and the Chinese uh, Hoshang monks and they were defeated and we adopted the Nalanda tradition of uh, Buddhism that originates from India and from Nagarjuna's time. So, so all these small things ref resonates or reflects India's relationship with Tibet and we must have had the biggest transliteration in the house in the world in 8th century when Shantarakshita advised the Tibetan emperor to translate every available Sanskrit text into Tibetan those days. Instead of him teaching Sanskrit to the Tibetans to study Buddhism, he advised the Tibetans to translate everything available in Sanskrit those days into Tibetan language. So that is why today we are a repository of one part of ancient Indian wisdom which we are very proud to have and be the custodian of that wisdom. Uh, and that has spread to many other countries in Mongolia, in the Russian republics of Kalmykia, Buria, Thuwa, and in the Indian Himalayas. Now, with His Holiness messages around the world, there are many more followers of this tradition. Um, and uh, it is manifested in the kind words of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, of nonviolence, peace, uh, compassion, and all that, which are part of, very much part of ancient Indian wisdom. And His Holiness always says that I am a messenger of Indian uh, ancient wisdom. So, uh, that being said, again, when Tibet disintegrated for about 400 years from 9th century to 13th century, uh, we had already developed relations with the Mongols, uh, with Kublai Khan's father, Altan Khan, even before Kublai became the Khan of uh, Mongolia and invaded China. So for Chinese historians, uh, the Yuan is only that period when the Mongols ruled China from 1271 to 1368. Mongols were there even before the Yuan or after the Yuan. But for the Chinese historian, it's only that period, 1721 and 1368. And Tibet was run by the Sajapas from Sajapas for about 100 years. Um, then China, in China, the uh, Mongols or the Yuan were overthrown by the Ming, which are the real Chinese. They are the Han Chinese. They ruled China from 1368 to 1644. And uh, uh, in Tibet, we had three hegemonies, the uh, Pamudruba hegemony for about 100 years, uh, Rimpungba hegemony for about 100 years, and then Devatsangba hegemony for about 100 years. So this goes parallelly with Chinese history. And uh, the fifth uh, Dalai Lama took over the temporal and spiritual leadership of uh, Tibet in 1642, two years before the Mings were overthrown by the Qings, who are the Manchus in China. So you can see all this historical uh, relativeness and comparison uh, to, to see how things evolved in, in the historical uh, aspect uh, in that region. And then the uh, uh, the fifth Dalai Lama and the successive Dalai Lamas ruled Tibet from 1642 till now, 
or till China's occupation, uh, occupation of Tibet by the Communist Party of China in 1951, if you can see that, because the actual invasion happened in October 1950 in Chamdo, and we were forced to sign this 17-point agreement under the threat of war. So uh, we didn't have much relation with the Minks from 1368 to 1644, as you can see, but then there were some relations during the Manchu period in the 18th century from 1720 onwards, where again China claims its sovereignty over Tibet, which is again hollow. Um, uh, during the Qing period also we had many relations. Of course we remained isolated on that plateau for so many centuries. That is why people don't know much about us and we never had a war with India because we had so much respect for India. As His Holiness always says, India is our guru and we are the chela. And uh, the land of India itself is very too sacred for Tibetans to take any action, violent action, against the country where Buddha uh, himself was born and where he preached. So even now, for Tibetans, uh, it's the Mecca uh, uh, for their pilgrimage. And if it is uh, for them, uh, it's a lifetime experience to come to India and visit Plumbini and Bodhgaya and other places where Buddha uh, lived his life. So that, I think, uh, equation of Tibetans being very close and very respectful towards India is being uh, changed by the Chinese government through the uh, boarding schools they have started, uh, where you are taken away from your family, taken away from your uh, language, religion, and culture, and you are taught only communist Chinese ideology and Chinese history and your allegiance and loyalty to the Communist Party. Um, so this historical aspect, uh, the overview that I gave is very important because uh, during the beginning of last century, uh, the Britishers, uh, British India uh, came into Tibet in 1904 uh, through the Young Husband expedition and there was no Chinese at that time. Uh, then later, uh, when Britishers left uh, China, the 13th Tibet, the 13th Dalai Lama had to flee to Mongolia and to China and came back to uh, Tibet only in 1909. Uh, from 1904 to 1909, his holiness was in Mongolia and uh, China. Uh, China and, uh, uh, there was no Chinese coming to the rescue of the Tibetans, claiming that Tibet is part of China. And we signed an agreement with the British Indian government to allow uh, trade up to Yangtze at that time. And then, after, soon after His Holiness left China, uh, it took about a month for him to reach China to Lhasa uh, in 1909. And three months after that, uh, there was uh, Tower Fang and Chinese army on the Tibetan border uh, in eastern Kham region, and many Tibetans were killed. And that was a very brief period when Tibet Chinese were there in Tibet uh, during the Qing period. And uh, His Holiness the 13th Dalai Lama had to again flee into India in 1910 and returned back in 1912 when uh, the Qing Empire collapsed and then China was taken over by the nationalist movement and there was civil war and uh, 
Tibetans removed every single Tibetan. It's not that the Tibetans killed the Chinese. They could kill the remaining Chinese in Tibet, but they did not. And they returned, they asked the Chinese army to return back to China, but they didn't send them uh, through the eastern border because Tibetans thought that they would come back with reinforcements, so they were sent through India. That's also the reason why you find a lot of Chinese in Kalimpong, Tajiling area those days before 1962 and later in the Kolkata region. Uh, they are descendants of Tibetans who were sent out from Tibet in 1912. So there was not a single Chinese in Tibet at that time. And then His Holiness returned back and then uh, reiterated, I won't say declare Tibet's independence. Tibet was independent even before that and reiterated Tibet's independence in 1913 uh, alongside uh, Mongolians. And then we were signatory to the Shimla Agreement that demarcates the India-Tibet border. And I don't want to go too much into that, but the very fact that the name Indo-Tibetan Border Police and Indo-Tibetan Border Force still remains in India underscores Indian government's thinking on the border between India and Tibet that was signed by, the, by Tibet as an independent nation, even though China was part of the discussions uh, in the first round, but they did not ratify the Shimla Agreement. And that was also the time when Tibet was divided into inner and outer uh, Tibet, which they did with Mongolia and uh, other areas. China is very good at creating all these divisions, thereby uh, even today I can see in the Indian media that only some media people recognize only Tibet autonomous region as Tibet. That's not so. There are Tibetan regions outside the Tibet autonomous region which China calls as Tibet autonomous prefectures and Tibet autonomous uh, counties. So it's all Tibet and Tibetans but they have now segregated Tibet into many regions and incorporated them into larger uh, Chinese provinces to make them minorities again, uh, uh, if you count that in that uh, uh, province. So the reason why I say that is because there has to be a recognition for the historical status of Tibet as an independent state. If that recognition is not there, then it does not add value to the uh, pragmatic approach of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the middle way policy, uh, which uh, uh, is essentially a Buddhist concept now applied in politics. Some even uh, now call it third way, some call it middle way. And this is avoiding extreme polarities of uh, Tibet uh, as an independent state historically on one hand, and Tibet under the repressive uh, occupation of the Chinese government. Uh, so we have to find a middle way where the Tibetans will have the freedom to use their language to preserve their culture, promote their religion, and also protect their environment. So if there is a solution to the uh, Sino-Tibet conflict through the middle way policy, I believe that this would have much more implications in South and Southeast Asia because Tibet borders with many countries in South, uh, East, Southeast and South Asia. And Tibet traditionally has played the role of a buffer between the two most populous nations in the world. Some people who don't know about Tibet think Tibet is so small like Bhutan. But Tibet is huge. Tibet is 2.5 million square kilometers. 
It's about one-fourth of China's total land mass and 18 times the size of Japan, 10 times the size of UK, or one-third of Australia, or maybe 60% of India's uh, uh, geographical area. So Tibet is huge. That is why Tibet historically has played the role of a buffer. Now, if there is a peaceful solution to the Sino-Tibet conflict, then I also believe that the Sino-Indian border or the Indo-Tibetan border should also be resolved. So if that is resolved, then there can be more peace between the two Asian chains, India and China. Um, again, coming to these relationships as to why China is belligerent on the Indian border, I try to give it a lot of thought as to why China is doing that. I find China very insecure today, even though all the powers are consolidated in the hand of one person, Xi Jinping. Because under Xi Jinping, you cannot have a meeting of more than three members of the Politburo. That convention has been there, but it's more reinforced during Xi Jinping, which itself manifests that they are afraid of internal coup. So not more than three Politburo members can meet together without the uh, permission of the president. And then, of course, there are, I think, now a lot more information on China's military. Under Xi Jinping, particularly in the last three, four years, he has been changing the generals every single year from place to place. They don't, he doesn't let the generals stay in one place so that the generals build better relations with the cadres. So which means to say that he is also afraid of military coup and trying to rule out military coup. Uh, just yesterday I was looking at one of the YouTubers from uh, talking about China and uh, Chinese people re response on the uh, ongoing escalation of uh, uh, problem between uh, Putin and uh, the Wagner's uh, Prigozhin and uh, Chinese people's reactions are very varied and it's very interesting to watch how Chinese people and the community and the leaders are uh, watching this. Uh, the YouTuber said that the, uh, initially when China covered the developments, uh, there were some 1.5 billion people who have watched this news and it's only 1.4 billion Chinese. So which means that uh, people who have, uh, if you take out those people who have no access to internet, then it's like every single Chinese watched it multiple times. So they know what is happening inside Russia. And just as there was this uh, uh, uh the stories about Prigozhin being good friend of Putin for the last 30 years and his chef and mercenary's life and all that, then China stopped covering that. And they covered only after there was a rapprochement in a sense that uh, uh, Prigozhin will go on exile to Belarus. Only after that, China started. That's the level of media control in, in China. This is just one example of how Chinese government controls the information flow uh, within China. So uh, now when we travel around the international community, we travel, we, we uh, inform the international community that if you keep repeating this statement that Tibet is part of People's Republic of China, then you're going against international law. Because we have only one agreement with People's Republic of China, that is the 17-point agreement. And under international law, any, agreements that is, any agreement that is preceded by forceful occupation is null and void. 
whether that happened 70 years ago or whether it's happening to Ukraine now. It's the same international law that was prevalent those days and which is prevailing even now. So if international law has to be applied, then why should Tibet be an exception to that? Then we also tell the international community that we are committed to the middle way uh, policy. So uh, then on the one hand, at the behest of the Chinese government, you keep repeating the statement that Tibet is part of PRC. And on the other hand, you support negotiation between the representatives of His Holiness Dalai Lama and the Chinese government. And we tell them these two don't go together because China rules Tibet with an iron hand. And then the whole international community keeps repeating like a parrot that Tibet is part of PRC without even having a look at people's uh, the history of Tibet. So then where is the reason for China to come and talk to us, to negotiate with us? You are removing the very ground for uh, for, for negotiation. And the third thing we tell the international community is that we lived on that plateau for so many centuries on our own, isolated from the world. And the neighboring countries decided for us during the great game. Now we are in exile and the whole international community keeps repeating this statement. Internationally, we all know uh, international scenario, if a country has invaded another, it's not every case they are, repeat, they are asking the international community to uh, repeat the statement that it's part of us. Even within China, China's Chinese government is not, not asking other governments to say Manchuria is part of China or East Turkestan is part of China or Mongolia is part of China. Why they are asking other countries to say Tibet is part of PRC? That itself is a big question. That is because the Chinese government knows that they have no legitimacy of their rule over Tibet. And that's why they are trying to seek this legitimacy from the international community. Now my question is, who is the international community to decide on Tibet's history? Because history cannot be decided by whims and fancies of politicians or governments. It has to be based on facts. That's why His Holiness has always repeated this statement when Chinese puts this precondition on His Holiness to say that Tibet is part of PRC. His Holiness says, I'm not a historian. Let's leave history to historians. And what matters for the Tibetans is the future of the Tibetan people. And we stand by that statement without going against it. So we decided to change our strategy uh, and the tactic a little bit towards uh, focusing more on the historical status of Tibet. And if there is a recognition that Tibet was an independent state, then that will have leverage on the middle way policy through which we try, we try to seek a non-violent, peaceful, negotiated, mutually beneficial, lasting solution for Tibet. And I believe that if there can be such a peaceful resolution to the Sino-Tibet conflict, then even China may not have to support Pakistan as much as it is doing in terms of missile technologies and nuclear technologies. What Pakistani people need is more employment, more education, not arms. Now Pakistan has more nuclear warheads than India. Combined together with China, they are one of the biggest forces with nuclear arms. <clears throat> and China is doing that mainly to contain, China, contain India. For many decades, India's foreign policy has been focused only on Jammu Kashmir, Pakistan, Jammu Kashmir, Pakistan. Now, we are glad that India is standing up to its position and standing up to its values. 
uh, if you don't stand up to your values, one thing we know, having lived with the Chinese for so many centuries, is Chinese will never respect weakness. Chinese will respect only strength. So if you stand up for your values, if you stand up for your positions, then only China will respect you. And that's what I tell the international community. If you count out to the Chinese all the time, then you will become like a pony, and China will keep riding you as much as they want. And I also tell the Europeans who have trade deficit with China as to who needs who more these days, whether the Chinese need the Europeans more or the Europeans need Chinese more. Uh, we request the Europeans when it comes to uh, containing or when it comes to issues regarding China, now you can't expect that the United States is there to contain China. China has become too powerful uh, for U.S. alone to handle that. So there has to be transatlantic cooperation rather than competition when it comes to China and work alongside all other free world nations of the free world. So uh, this is the geostrategic importance of Tibet. It, uh, it's not, not just the natural resources and all the developmental activities that are taking place in terms of railways and the airfields and the Shaogangs, you know, under the theme, if you want to protect the nation, you attack, protect the frontiers first. So they are sending more people on the border areas, and mostly with the Himalayan border, not with every other border in, uh, with other countries. So uh, from a security point of view, uh, uh, if uh, this Sino-Tibet conflict can be resolved peacefully through the Middle Way policy, we believe that this will bring in a lot of stability and peace in the region. Uh, environmental aspect, uh, I'm sure there is one uh, extensive uh, session on environment, but I just want to say that we call our land as the land heavenly abode, snow, surrounded by land surrounded by snow mountain ranges. Uh, we have the Himalayas in the south, the Kunlun in the, the Karakoram in the west, the Kunlun in the north, and series of mountain ranges in the east. So we were always surrounded by snow mountain ranges, and we thought these are impregnable uh, uh, at, at one time. Now it, even Himalayas don't make sense. And the, the Western nations called us the roof of the world because of Tibet's altitude. So when I was speaking to the Japanese student, I was asking them, which is the highest mountain in your country? They said Mount Fuji, about 3,700, 800 meters above sea level. And I was telling them, this is like base camp in Tibet. So starting from the Himalayas, that's how Tibet is. Because it came out of the friction of tectonic plate between the Asian and the Gondwana plate. And people still say it's growing. And then Asians now refer to Tibet as the water tower of Asia. Uh, Jayadevji also referred to that, the satellite and the Indus flowing through India to uh, Pakistan. And Indus is the cradle of Indus Valley civilization. The two major rivers of China, Yalu and Yangtze, originate from the Tibetan Plateau. And if it is not for these two rivers, China won't be where it is today. So we also witnessed uh, the, the effect of climate change on the Yangtze last year, last summer, when the Yangtze went down by half and there was no navigation, there was no production of hydroelectricity generation. And uh, there are serious talks about diversion of Brahmaputra also in the northern region. So. This also has serious impacts on the, on the Indian subcontinent. Then you have rivers that flow into Nepal, Brahmaputra flowing into India and Bangladesh. Uh, last year end, I was in Arunachal Pradesh, and uh, the chief minister of Arunachal Pradesh was 
gracious enough to, uh, by providing us a helicopter. And we were traveling from Pasigat to Tuting, and that's the area where the Brahmaputra flows into India, in Arunachal Pradesh. And when we saw from the uh, helicopter, the main river is very muddy. All the tributaries were pristine clear. And it's not like this was going on for the last few days or few months. It has been going on since 2018. And which means to say that there's a lot of work going on in the upstream uh, Brahmaputra, particularly at Pemakwe, where the uh, Brahmaputra takes a U-turn. And China is supposed to be building a dam, uh, a mega dam, twice the size of Three Gorges, which is the biggest in the world. So you can imagine how much land is going to be inundated upstream which will destroy a lot of unique flora and fauna of that region. And then you can imagine the catastrophe if something has to happen to that kind of a size of a dam, because the whole Himalaya is a seismic zone. And then the Arunachal, Eastern Arunachal, Assam, and Bangladesh would be wiped away by uh, water. So uh, that originates from Tibet. So some rivers go into the Salween and the Irrawaddy go into Brahma. Uh, the Mekong flows into Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam. So you're talking about four countries in South Asia, five countries in Southeast Asia, and China, ten countries who are dependent on rivers that originate from Tibet. Some estimate that 1.8 billion to 2 million people have something or the other to do with rivers that originate from Tibet. And sometimes I tell the international community that we are political refugees today, but tomorrow there could be so many environmental refugees. Now you hear more and more cases of stories where people are losing their livelihood because of how China controls water on the uh, uh, watershed areas of Tibet with so many dammings, multiple dammings. Uh, and China does not share any hydrological data with any of its downstream riparian states. Forget about water sharing agreements. So we are talking about serious water security and food security in the region because the areas that we are talking about are some of the most densely populated areas in the world. So that uh, is one aspect of uh, the importance of Tibet uh, environment and ecology that has serious impact not only on the Tibetans but all the neighboring countries and globally on climate change. Now Chinese environmental scientists call Tibet as the third pole because of the amount of glaciers and permafrost that feeds all these major rivers. And uh, uh, the UN watchdog uh, on climate change, the IPCC, says that uh, apart from the other two poles, the North and South Pole, which is melting at three times the speed uh, of that of a normal climate change in other parts of the world, Tibet is melting at twice the speed. So if all the ice and the glaciers melt on the Tibetan plateau, then all the downstream countries will have serious water problems because there will be no more perennial rivers that originate from this, even though the volume of water may differ from place to place. Then you will also, you will only have to depend on rainfall. And rainfall is also impacted by the jet streams that flow over the Tibetan plateau. The monsoons are affected because of that. So there are serious implications that we are talking about where the neighboring countries are not able to raise their voice against the Chinese government right now because they are so dependent economically on China. And uh, uh, yes, the cultural importance. Uh, so that one aspect I was saying, since we follow Buddhism, we our language came from India, we are an extension of Indian culture. It's, we are not an extension of 
Chinese culture at all. So in that sense, even I am someone who is born in exile. I always say I look a little different when I'm Tibetan, but our mind is all Indian because that's how we are shaped up by Indian thoughts. Yeah, so uh, we feel much more closer to uh, India and the uh, level of soft power that uh, manifested in the form of His Holiness messages around the world is very much needed today. Buddha's teachings are very, very relevant even today. In this 21st century, we expected the world to be much more peaceful because people are more educated, more economically, much better than uh, before. But then, uh, unfortunately, it's turning the other way around. So the message of Buddha uh, and the, uh, is very, very relevant even today. So normally I talk about the geostrategic importance of Tibet, uh, environmental importance of Tibet, and the cultural importance of Tibet as to why solution to the Sino-Tibet conflict is necessary to bring more peace and stability in the region and the Whole, whole world. So, and we, to do that, we focus on the historical status of Tibet. So, there should be a recognition of uh, the uh, historical status of Tibet as an independent state to gain exact leverage for the middle way policy. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, there is a lot of dynamism, a lot of fluidity in international politics. As we speak also, a lot of things are changing. And sometimes uh, you tend to believe after the G7, you, you, it sounds more like the whole world is going to be bipolarized. If you look at the composition of the countries that met there and the special invitees that were there. But why is all this happening? I think China needs to be very introspective in their approach. They always like pointing figures at every other nation. They interfere in domestic affairs of every other nation, and then they ask all other nations to say, this is China's domestic problem, don't interfere in that. So China is always a contradiction. What they say and what they do are two totally different things. And one thing that can really bring China down is economy right now. So we are talking about 11.6 million young Chinese between the age of 17 to 24 who are unemployed. And this, I presume, would be a very conservative number if you uh, take into account the ages above 24 who are young people and educated people. And Xi Jinping is using the same policies as what Mao Zedong used to uh, do, now asking the educated young to go to the rural areas and work on the fields. So where is the reason for people to sp spend so much money for education to study in different uh, universities around the world and come back to work on the fields? Uh, that's not what the young people of China had dreamt of. That's not the Chinese dream. So Chinese dream is falling apart. So as long as China has the trade surplus, even with India, despite all the rhetoric, uh, the business has been going up from 79 billion to 118 or so billion. Uh, that does not help India. Of course, uh, I'm sure India has its reasons for increasing this business for basic components that are not available here, that are affected by supply chain problems. But still, I think India needs to be very, very strategic in, in its approach when it comes to business with uh, China, not just about the political uh, uh, nitpicking that is going on. So I 
I said this uh, earlier before also, even now I say China feels very insecure. Uh, what concerns them more is the sustainability and the survival of the Communist Party. If the Communist Party does not survive, then there is no foreign trade, there is no international trade. Yeah, so we mentioned about Xi Jinping's uh, policy of not allowing more than three members of the Politburo to meet uh, together because they are afraid of internal coup. We mentioned about the Chinese military generals being posted every year to make sure that there is no military coup. And then China is the only country that spends more money on internal security than external security. That itself manifests a deep distrust between the rulers and the ruled. And why these belligerents on the Indian border? Why assertiveness in the South China Sea? Why saber-rattling with Taiwan or with Japan on Senkaku Islands? That those hotspots are being kept alive if in case there is a threat to the survival of the implosion within China and threat to the survival of the Communist Party, then, then, then only they will definitely attack one of these areas, depending on the severity of the challenges they face domestically. Till that time, I don't think China will even have the courage to launch a war against Taiwan. It's too risky. And right now they are not in a position to uh, do that, because what concerns them is the uh, continuation of the Communist Party. And uh, as long as they have this balance of trade, which I keep telling the Europeans, because most of the Europeans, European countries have trade deficit with China. The two countries that had traveled just recently coming back from there, there are, there are very few countries who had trade surplus with China, New Zealand and uh, Australia. So we keep telling the Europeans, if you, we have this Tibetan expression of stone and butter, uh, you hit the stone at the butter, uh, the butter loses. Uh, you throw the stone at uh, the butter at the stone. Also, the butter loses. So we kept telling the Europeans, if you think you are the butter all the time, you'll keep losing. And then they also say, oh, the dragon is biting back at, at us. Then I tell them, who fed the dragon? The Americans fed the dragon. Europeans fed the dragon. Japanese fed the dragon. Taiwanese also fed the dragon. So we are all responsible for making China strong, but not being able to tame China, tame the dragon. And still knowing that we are not able to tame the dragon, and if we still continue to feed the dragon, then you can't blame the dragon. You have to blame yourself. So those, I think, uh, needs to be understood. And then every country in Europe, particularly since it's 27 different countries, everybody is framing their own Indochina policy or China policy or... You know, and there are some countries that are just waking up to this reality only after the freedom knocked on Ukraine's door. So till that time, there was no interest in studying about what we have been saying for several decades about the threat coming from China. Nobody listened to us. Nobody took us seriously. Now people are listening. That's why we, we also appeal to them, please don't look at us only from the perspective of victim of communism. If you can look at us from the perspective of being partners to bring about positive change inside China, then it will be more productive. Because to bring about positive change inside China, nobody wants anarchy in China. It's going to have serious uh, global consequences. So if we have to bring positive changes inside China, then you need both internal forces and external forces. We Tibetans the Uyghurs, the Mongols, now even the Manchus and the Hong Kongers, and if you want to include the Taiwanese also, you can do that. We are all the internal forces. 
if you can look at us as partners, not as victims of communism, and then help us in the way we need to be helped or supported. And I think that would be more productive. So, uh, with the uh, uh, Indian government, uh, there is a lot more awareness. Uh, with the whole region uh, where I just visited and coming back, everybody knows that China is the biggest threat, uh, biggest challenge. Europeans are uh, saying that we know you, Russia is the immediate threat, but the long-term challenge is definitely China. So all those realizations are there. But then again, we get confused, but what kind of messages are the Europeans sending to the world? Or what kind of messages is China sending to the Europeans? They need the European market, but at the same time, they tell them to keep away from Indochina so that China can extend its hegemonistic policies in the region. With the intervention of the free world, it's not possible for China to do that. So we are looking at many geopolitical, geostrategic issues, evolving situation in the region, internationally. Uh, it's interesting times, and for the Tibetans, it's a, a good time to advocate for Tibet, make, uh, uh, create more awareness, as uh, Jayadev uh, said, even through meetings like this. Uh, I, as mentioned before also, sometimes we live under the illusion that since we live in India, many Indians must be knowing about Tibet, but uh, sometimes uh, we get the feelings that some Indians don't know anything about Tibet uh, because they are not bothered much about the security perspective and not many are experts like Jayadev Ji on China and Tibet. Uh, it's a very limited number of people who study China and who really understand China from the perspective of how they should be understood. So uh, maybe I'll stop here. You have uh, the whole day uh, with different sessions focusing on different uh, uh, topics uh, that you would be discussing about. And uh, the experts will definitely present you with the uh, details of uh, all the issues that are going to be discussed, and those will be more helpful. I'm not an academic, I'm not a researcher, but I know only the overall policies that Chinese government is implementing and how our people are being driven through desperation. And uh, the kind of colonial-style boarding schools that they have started is a crime against humanity, uh, not only a cultural genocide uh, uh, inside Tibet, so China should be made accountable and answerable to this. Otherwise, uh, and if leaders around the world do, do not recognize the oneness of humanity that His Holiness has been talking about for so many decades, and the interdependent nature of our existence, uh, then one cannot have a holistic approach uh, to the problems. Uh, then you will be looking at only the immediate benefits that countries can accrue with their relations with China. And that's going to be very, very detrimental, not only for the people who are suffering under the repressive government of China, but also for the whole uh, international community. So now it's a war. Chinese Xi Jinping has been saying, we don't need to change the governance. We have proven that communism can take up economic development. But Chinese government failed to apply their mind in all other areas. They only think only about economic development, economic development. For every problem, they say economic development is a solution. When we hear about Chinese leaders talking about uh, uh, Tibet, they always say, oh, we invested so much money in China in economic development, economic development with the railways. And 
railways, roads, all these helipads, what are they built for? What purpose is it serving? Is it serving China's strategic moves or is it serving the Tibetan population? Of course, Tibet, Tibetan population also benefits uh, through the trickle-down effect, but that's not mainly for Tibetan people's benefit. It's for China's strategic moves uh, uh, in the region where they will have an upper hand over the neighboring countries. And uh, uh, if we look at all the military installations inside Tibet, it's on, all aimed towards India. Not at everybody. It's not aimed at Pakistan or Russia or Burma, because China is the biggest bully, and they like to have all other bullies with them. They always try to take all other bullies with them. And uh, the free world also, when it comes to sanctions against the Chinese government, they keep mum. Uh, they very, uh, smaller countries like Iran, Burma, and all where they think they can tackle it, handle it, then they impose sanctions. So what message are we sending to the international community? When you are not able to handle the biggest bully, then you handle the smaller bullies, and that does not have a multiple effect on the uh, biggest bully, because the biggest bully always gets, gets away with whatever they are doing. So the international community and the free world need to stand up for the values, otherwise those freedoms would also be knocking on your door, and then that would be catastrophe for the whole world. So. We firmly believe in nonviolence. We firmly believe in the middle way uh, policy proposed by His Holiness, approved by the Tibetan Parliament. But uh, at the same time, I think we need to be more uh, clear about our position on the historical status of Tibet, not just listen to China uh, and China's version of East Asian history. So please look at other sources. I can give you a reference of at least two people, Michael Van Walt Van Prague, who came out with his book, Tibet Brief 2020, and he worked with some 70, 80 scholars from Inner Asia uh, and came out with this conclusion that whether it's Tibet-Yuan relation or Tibet-Ming relation or Tibet-Ching relation or as per international law today, Tibet has never been considered part of China. And then if you look at Professor Lao's book, Lao Han Tin, he's a Chinese himself. And he was always perturbed by this question as to why Chinese government keeps asking other countries to say that Tibet is part of PRC if it has already been a part of China. So he, after his retirement as an economics professor, then studied only the imperial Chinese historical records from Yuan to Ming to Qing, if you can consider the Yuan and Qing also as Chinese. Because there are a lot of academic discourses in China as to who is the real Chinese. So if the Mongols are Chinese, maybe China can claim half the world because Genghis Khan invaded that area, that much area. So uh, with these uh, uh, few thoughts, uh, I wish uh, to thank uh, Jayadev Ranaji uh, again and also for the center for organizing this conference. And uh, I believe that this will uh, spread more awareness and create more understanding on the situation of Tibet. Uh, from a historical perspective, from a human rights perspective, uh, uh, and uh, the uh, geopolitical, environmental, security issues, all aspects it's related, uh, that is related to Tibet has its impacts on India, uh, more, more particularly to India. So there has to be more understanding of the nature of our uh, relations and the emotional bonding between the 
Indians and the Tibetans. And at one time, the Indian authorities were very worried, as Jaidevji mentioned, about recruitment of Tibetans in the PLA. So my contention was, do you think the PLA will trust the Tibetans with machine guns on the border, whether they will shoot at India or they will shoot back? Nobody knows. <laughs> so that's also something to think about, but they are trying to change that. So now how do we counter all those uh, challenges that we have to face in the coming days and the months and years? Thank you very much for the opportunity, and thank you again.